Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The moment when he told me about the loss of his wife and about how his son doesn't cry for her, all of us choked up. It was such a terrible tragedy that the family had gone through. So that's why I think it's really important to not lose sight of the big mega trends, the numbers, the statistics, and geopolitics, but always remember that there, there are people behind it. Migration. Every day, every week, every month, every year, it's a news story that's never far from the headlines. The recent tragedy in the Mediterranean, in which hundreds of people drowned trying to reach Greece, was just one of a few I've seen of late. BBC. Fresh blow for Rishi Sunak as number of small boat crossings hits new record for 2023. Rishi Sunak, anger against EU on the rise after migrant shipwreck of Greek Daily Mail, Labour opposed crackdown on small boats as 616 migrants cross the channel in a single day. Kent M. Boats criticised record as net migration hits record level. But let's just pause for a moment and take a step back. Because for all the political rows over small boats and migration targets, which, if we're honest, can be difficult to keep up with, what if what we're actually seeing here is something much bigger and more significant? What if we're seeing the transformation of an entire continent? Here's a question. Will historians look back at the 21st century in Europe and say, actually, this, and by this, I mean a huge shift in what our continent looks like, driven by migration, will in fact be as big as any of the grand historical changes we've seen. Well, that's the argument of one writer and journalist. I think the borders of Europe and where exactly it is are are blurring. Our old mental map isn't quite fit. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Josh Glancy, special correspondent at The Sunday Times. Today, migration, how Europe as we know it is changing for good. Ben, could you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, my name's Ben Judah. I'm a writer and a journalist who writes about Europe. And I also think about Europe at a think tank called the Atlantic Council. I'm incredibly kind of curious, and that led me to writing this book, This Is Europe, where 
you really have the whole continent laid out from Syrian refugees turned porn stars to historic winemakers to Russian gas workers. And your previous book was about the migrant experience of London to a great extent. You've taken this on a level with Europe and looking at the whole continent and a lot of these migrant stories that come up in the new book too. Why, what do you think is so important about those stories and why do you think they need telling? Well, one of the things that I think is happening right now in Britain and in Europe is this mega trend of immigration and ethnic change. The country and also the continent are transforming through a combination of immigration and ageing really into an immigrant nation and an immigrant continent with a complexity of uh, backgrounds and a new culture, which I think hasn't properly been addressed or, or written about or even really talked about in the right way over the last few decades that it's been happening. We talk about immigration a lot day to day. In Britain, we're talking about small boats. We're talking about what could be done to regulate that. But what you're saying is that beyond these policy debates and these political wrangles, there is this giant trend of a world on the move of, of continents converging on Europe. Absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to capture in This Is Europe is the way that this continent is blurring with Africa and Asia in all kinds of strange, interesting, occasionally scary and sometimes beautiful ways. And this is being driven by a couple of very powerful trend lines. One of them is climate change. Whole ecosystems are deteriorating around Europe, sending people north. Another is aspiration, is that as people have reached a certain living standard, the pull of the promise of freedom and the pull of the promise of actualizing what they're seeing in that sort of global internet monoculture through TV and, and TikTok is proving irresistible. So these forces are making that world get up and go. Okay, so that's the big picture of the megatrend, as you call it. But let's zoom in for a moment and take us back to March 2018. Where are you and what are you doing? And this is when you set out to report this book, and it's taken you about five years, hasn't it, to, to do the whole thing. But take us back to that initial moment. So five years ago, I found myself in the Alps, high up in the, the mountains that we normally know as skiing destinations. I was there because large numbers of really kind of desperate African migrants were crossing the passes of Hannibal and the passes of Napoleon into France, trying to evade the police that were blocking the roads and the railways and the bus routes in order to make it to what was for them, mostly coming from French-speaking countries, was a promised land. They absolutely did not want to stay in Italy, where you're supposed to stay in the EU. If you land in one country and you claim asylum, you're supposed to stay there. It's not, you're not actually allowed to go into the next country. So they were disobeying that and they were trying to reach France. I find myself high up in this ski resort in a place called Clavier, right on the, the border, sort of cold outside the church where a group of migrants were congregating. And they were congregating because a group of activists were getting ready to smuggle them over into France, like through the pass and through the mountains. So I joined them. 
I wanted to see for myself what the migrant journey was like. I find myself up in the freezing cold. I'm not going to go on about how cold it was, but it was really cold. With you know, this long line of migrants at my front and at my back in single file, absolutely terrified. And they were terrified because they'd gone on this long journey, often across the Sahara, across the Mediterranean, you know, losing people along the way. And they were frightened of, of guards. They were frightened of being shot. And at one moment, a sort of father taps me on the, the shoulder from behind and he's carrying his little girl on his shoulders. And he goes, I can't go on, my brother, I can't go on. Can you take her? And I find myself carrying this little girl on my shoulders as we go up uh, into the woods. This is an interesting moment, though, as a journalist, isn't it? Because you've been asked to help someone who can't carry their daughter over a mountain, but you are there as a reporter. Uh, were you worried about, about being arrested, about the potential consequences of, of, of what, where you were and what you were doing? Well, in that particular moment, I felt I'd slipped over into their world. And I felt it because all of a sudden, here I am carrying this, this child. I'm, as far as French police are concerned, a people smuggler. And that is a criminal offence. And all they have to do is turn up now with their dogs. And I'm going to spend the next five years not writing this book. I'm going to spend it in a, in a sort of criminal case trying to say, oh, no, I wasn't a pe people smuggler. I was a journalist. They might not necessarily believe that. And obviously, the consequences for me were, you know, it might have been a fine or, you know, possibly some kind of sentence, but they're not that grave. I started looking at the people around me and thinking everybody around me was facing, if they were caught, the risk of deportation, all of the journey having been in vain. And I really felt I saw it from their perspective, how menacing and cold and, and frightening it was. So this crossing, you're going from Clavier in Italy over the Alps into France. It's nighttime. How hard is it? Uh, well, I found it pretty physically challenging. Pretty deep snow. We went up through some kind of some woods, and then eventually there was a kind of escarpment. We had to sort of sort of low escarpment. We had to kind of climb up, and I actually couldn't do it. I had to be pulled up at that moment. When we got to the other side, there were the smugglers' cars, which you know quickly hurried people inside and then drove them down to the town of Briançon. And one of the things I was I was struck in that particular moment was just how lost some of these migrants were. Some guy asked me how far away we were from Paris, and I said we were about 800 miles away. and looked a bit kind of disappointed. I wonder if you could just tell us who, who were the people you met? Were they young men? What, what did they tell you? Where did they come from? They were mostly people from the sort of West African, lower middle class, people who just wanted a better life. So the group arrives in Briançon. What's Briançon like as a place? And, and what do they hope to do when they get there? I mean, you, you mentioned one wanted to get to Paris. Do they have a plan at that point? And what's this town that they're arriving in like? So I arrived in Briançon. It's a historic mountain town. Like many of these sort of historic towns, it's been really sort of hollowed out by the forces of modern migration within France and modern tourism. And all of a sudden, it found itself confronted with a very powerful question of what is Europe? What is really your identity as Europeans? Because the town are divided in the face of what for them was an enormous migration wave. There were the people who were helping the migrants. And for them, Europe was universalism. Europe is human rights. Europe is empathy. And that's a tradition going all the way back to sort of Athens and traditions of democracy, traditions of Venice. For them, there was nothing more noble 
them to do what we'd just done and to cross the Alps, helping the migrants come across. And I was told again and again and again, this is what our grandparents did in the resistance in France against the Nazi occupation when we smuggled Jews out of France the other way into Italy. However, on the other side of town, there was a group known as Generation Identity, a white supremacist group, which saw things very differently. And for them, the idea of Europe is not human rights, Europe as an ethnic community or community of communities, an idea of Europe as blood and soil, sort of vision of Europe really anchored in the idea that this is a Christian continent. For them, they kept on talking about the French resistance as well and saying, we're the resistance because this is an invasion. This group, Generation Identity, was literally patrolling, doing these vigilante patrols, trying to catch migrants and stop the activist smugglers, which I'd joined. And I felt looking at this, this is really, there's something essential here about the politics of Europe. And this town had been forced to decide in the face of this influx, what did it put first, universalism or nationalism? And you're in Briançon, and you meet one particular migrant who has a very difficult story to tell. I went to the shelter, and in the shelter I met a guy called Brico, and he, with his young son, Chris, had just arrived some hours before over the mountains, and they had come from the Ivory Coast, and they'd been on what was truly a harrowing journey through the Sahara, through Libya, and across the Mediterranean. And as I was sort of sitting and, and talking to Brico, his eyes were really haunted by something. And I quickly kind of learned what it was, which is that he had lost his wife and young daughter on the journey to slavers that were operating in Libya. He had seen his wife raped in front of his eyes. He'd been imprisoned by border guards. And then he sort of lost her to a raid that took place by slavers operating there that sort of kidnapped her and took her God knows where. And because he'd sold his phones and her phone on the course of the journey, he had no idea whether she was alive or dead. And I remember him, you know, sort of touching his young son, Chris, and going, he still doesn't cry. For the moment, he's, he doesn't cry for her. He doesn't ask for her. It's hard to imagine how he was really even able to to share that story with you. I, why had Brico and his family left the Ivory Coast? What had driven them away from their home to take these incredible risks? People like Brico feel that there is no possibility for them in these, these countries to find the life that they want. They're never going to find that freedom and that basic comfort and that basic prosperity that they see constantly coming out of their phones when they see what life can be like in America, in, in Europe. And it's so tempting to take the risk because if you can get there in their minds, then you really can give your wife and children a better chance. And in his case, he, he tragically was not able to give his wife and one of his children that chance. And did you sense that he regretted the decision to leave and was it, what was his mental state given given that ordeal that he'd been through well he was posting on on facebook 
you guys keep talking back home, my son will walk on European soil. You keep talking. So he was clearly responding to criticism, shall we put it, from people back home. And put very simply, why France? What was the pull of France for him? Pull of France for him is he speaks French and he doesn't speak Italian. And in France, he knew he would get higher benefits than he would get in Italy. And he said that he'd experienced kind of racism and discrimination in Turin, where he was first placed in a, a migrant camp. And that when he'd arrived in Italy, he'd been shocked to discover that Europe wasn't sort of one big country. That If you land in Italy, you've got to wait for your asylum to be processed in Italy, and you're going to get a little bit of money from the Italian government. He just felt it just wasn't enough. And there was a lot of talk amongst the migrants and the refugees there that the only places really worth getting to in Europe were Paris, London, the big cities of Germany, and Stockholm in Sweden. And you must be very tempted when you meet these people to to find out what happens to them. Do you, do you have any sense of where Brico and his son are now or whether he ever found his wife again? As far as I know, he hasn't, as of the last time I spoke to him not too long ago. And he was placed in accommodation by the French government in the countryside, actually, sort of about two hours northwest of Paris. And his son's in, in school, and he feels that his son is really becoming French, and his son is really mastering the, the language. How do you think he lives with that uncertainty of, of just not knowing whether his wife is alive or not. I mean, it, it's hard to really comprehend. Well, that's why he wanted to tell me the story, because, you know, I was one of the first people that spoke to him once he'd arrived on in France on the other side of the mountain. And we sat down all day and he told me everything and I wrote down everything. And the moment when he told me about the loss of his wife and about how his son doesn't cry for her, all of us choked up. It was such a terrible tragedy that the family had gone through. So that's why I think it's really important to not lose sight of the big mega trends, the numbers, the statistics and the geopolitics, but always remember that there, there are people behind it, people like Brico. So as climate change conflicts and the desire for a better life, push more people like Brico to Europe. What now for the continent? And what could the future look like? Ben and I discuss all that in just a moment. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so before the break, we were discussing how in Briançon, this small town on the French-Italian border, there were these two competing views of how to treat migrants who arrive in France, the humanitarian perspective the identitarian perspective. Um, so let's let's look at some of the statistics now uh, of how migration really is transforming Europe. And in researching and writing your book, what are the numbers that have really jumped out at you that, that illustrate these trends? The reason I wanted to write about migration is I think it really is the profound change of our time. It is as profound in its own ways as reformations or wars, because it's changing everything about the societies in which we live. And let's just have a look at one statistic about London. In 1951, the percentage of people living in London who were foreign-born was 8% of the population. Today, it's 41%. London went from being an essentially English city or a British city to being an international immigrant city. It was a, it's a different place. There's a huge continuity there, but it's a different place. The people are different. And that transformation, you can really see it right across Europe. And when I, I travel from sort of Helsinki to Lisbon or from Istanbul to Cork for this book, This Is Europe, I really felt that that was visible everywhere. It wasn't, hadn't advanced maybe to the same degree, but that process was underway. Let's have a look at France. Like France in 1950 was more or less 0.5% Muslim. That's our mental image of a Catholic France, the first daughter of the Catholic Church. Today, France is about 10% Muslim. That's a huge change. That, in a lot of ways, is a different society. And let's have a look at Germany. Like Germany is not a mono-ethnic German society. 17% of all people living in Germany have immigrated there since 1950. And I think that these are some of the most important trends of our times. So it's interesting to think that the London that you and I live in now, an incredibly diverse city, in some ways perhaps represents the European future and that Paris, Berlin, Milan are perhaps moving towards where we are already. I think that's definitely the case. London, just in terms of the percentages, a huge amount of people who are born abroad, really an immigrant city, is what, if not even the future, but the present look like in many of the great cities of, of Europe and soon to be many more. And I think it's very important for Europe to look at, at London and work out why is this city successful and how can we make sure that the continent as a whole succeeds? There's a lot of fear about it. Will societies even hold together or function? But if you look at London, we have one of Europe's most prosperous, best integrated, in my opinion at least, one of the most wonderful places to live. And it's incredibly diverse. If you want to see a positive vision of the future, you can see it right here in London. And Ben, why do you think it is that London leads the pack in this way? We're, we're an island you wouldn't necessarily expect us to 
to be the, the first city or the leading city in, in terms of diversity. Why do you think that's transpired? Well, I think London's been Europe's city of the future from the time of, of Shakespeare and has always been at the edge of these profound trends. I mean, one of the obvious reasons is that Britain, even though it's not in the European Union, is still the European country the most open to the world. And often I speak to French diplomats who tell me, you know, you may have left the EU, but we're amazed when we look at your cabinet by its diversity and its connections all over the world. When we look at your civil service, we just don't have that. We're too stuck in an old idea of ourselves and an old idea of, of Europe, which is undermining us on the global stage. And I suppose it's also, in many ways, our post-imperial legacy. We had these waves of migration from the subcontinent, from the Caribbean, at the end of the British Empire, really, that perhaps also put us on that, on that path quite, quite early on. Definitely, definitely. There's also another story to that, which is how the rest of the country deals with London. And one of the things that I have noticed is that over the last five years, and really since 2016, which is, of course, the day of the Brexit referendum, Europe has become much more restrictionist on immigration. And a lot of things which people in the more Remain mindset or camp in the UK view as being a sort of British particularism of Brexit are actually now really core parts of the politics of Italy or Sweden, increasingly so in France, coming up in Spain and, uh, and Germany. In many ways, we have already become immigrant countries to a significant extent. The trends you've described seem likely to continue. So how can we expect these trends to evolve, these megatrends of migration to evolve over the coming decades? And how might that then transform our politics? Well, one of the key things to remember is that climate change is going to lead to an ever larger amount of principally Africans moving, moving northwards. You know, the amount of people being displaced within Africa and trying to leave it by mid-century is probably going to be around three and a half million a year and estimates are possibly half of them will be trying to reach Europe. It's very hard to project but that's what expert analysis looks like right now. And the changes that have already taken place in Europe are going to accelerate. So if you're looking towards mid-century the medium immigration estimate is that societies like Britain or France will be around 17% Muslim. So one of the things that I think is going to happen is that European politics is going to be influenced by these two trends in quite an interesting direction. The change in the pressure coming from migration from the south is also going to affect North African countries. And we're already seeing in Tunisia and in Morocco and Algeria really quite fierce anti-immigrant spirit and anti-immigrant politics. And what I think is going to happen is that the North African countries and the European countries are going to increasingly come together to try and solve this migration problem in a restrictionist point of view. But it's already happening. We're going to see it in a far more advanced way. We're going to see the EU and countries like Britain and, and Norway paying North African countries to keep that great migration in the Sahara, to stop BRICO coming. And I think the fact that Europe is can't really be described as a Judeo-Christian civilization anymore. It's become a sort of Abrahamic, multicultural civilization. I think that that's going to 
push us also in that trend of working with the Arab world and realizing that Europe isn't on its own and can't solve its own problems anymore. So that's what I mean by Europe is blurring with Africa and Asia. You know, you compared these changes earlier to other great shifts in European history, could be the Reformation, could be some of the great wars of the 17th century, imperial collapse, the Roman Empire. A lot of those were quite top down in a way. This, in some ways, feels like it's very bottom up, that the world is on the move, that this, there is this wave, this groundswell of movement that is probably, for our political leaders, much harder to address in some ways. Well, I don't think that Europe's political leaders are going to be truly capable of building walls around the, the continent. What I think they are going to be end up doing is building deals with uh, Arab countries, principally in North Africa, to try and build an outer perimeter for them. But I don't think that that's going to stop Europe's transformation through immigration. Like, you know, if we look at, you know, Europe's an aging continent, Africa's a young continent hit by climate change, by mid century, it'll be roughly seven out of 10 Africans will be young people. There'll be 25% of the world population. They could even be 40% of the world population by 2100. Europe is going to blur with Africa and Asia. The question is, is it going to blur in a manner that's marked by populist politics and, and violence and people like Brico suffering these painful tragedies? Or is there, is there another way? So, I mean, we're really confronting a huge generational political dilemma here. And talking about Rishi Sunak and the small boats, the, the issue of today in, in Britain, it broadly comes into a debate between Labour and the Tories. And they're in some ways trying to seem, seemingly outflank each other on this issue. But do you think we've really grappled in a serious way with what the next 20, 40 years could look like on this issue? Not at all. And one of the reasons is that we still insist on dealing with the challenge of the 21st century, which really is migration, uh, with budgets from the 20th century, as if we're dealing only with sort of student visas and sort of people kind of uh, traveling from nearby countries. You need a massive expansion of the amount of cash for processing, managing. And I think politicians also need to be honest that you know, reducing immigration to the tens of thousands just isn't going to happen in this century and in this uh, in this world. This is a, a mega trend and that we can manage it. And we've got to decide on, you know, as a democracy, Britain has to decide the ways it, it wants to manage it. Does it want to put universalism and human rights first or does it want to put identity and, you know, what some people would call British tradition first? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Josh Glancy, special correspondent at The Sunday Times, and my guest, journalist Ben Judah. Ben's new book, This Is Europe, The Way We Live Now, is out now. We've put a link to it in the description notes of this podcast. It really is a fascinating read and follows the stories of 23 different people across the continent. Today, we brought you Bricos. There are many more. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thank you for listening, and see you again soon. <laughs>